Hey guys, and welcome to Inside the Morgue, the podcast that debunks your favorite true crime dramas while also giving you the inside scoop of what really happens in the world of forensics. We're your hosts, Jess and Alice. This week, we're watching Rosewood Season 1, Episode 12, titled Negative Autopsies and New Partners. We're going to talk about decomposition, everybody's favorite, maggots, facial reconstruction, and meth labs. So let's get into it. So while Rosewood is in his office talking to a woman, he sees a news report that remains of a 15-year-old girl with no ID was found in the woods. Right away, this is a red flag. If she's a Jane Doe, how do they know her exact age? I thought the same thing. It it drove me nuts immediately. I was like, no. Yeah, that doesn't really happen. Typically, John and Jane Doe's are given an approximate age range. They likely would have given her like an age range of 15 to 25 if they thought she was around 15. But all of that is only after an examination is done. Right. And also, we talked about this a little bit in, I think it was our Autopsy of Jane Doe Part 1 episode when we talked about the Doe Network. They had like an age range for the Doe, the Jane Doe that they found in that one. And it ended up being incorrect, actually. She was just slightly older than they thought she was. They thought she was a teenager, but she was a little older. And that's why it took so long to identify her. Yeah. And one way that they could get a smaller age range would be to look at the collarbone. So your collarbone stops growing at 25 years old in the majority of people. Therefore, if someone is believed to be 15, that person might have an underdeveloped collarbone. And thus, it would seem that even if the estimate is wrong, this individual cannot be older than 25. Anyway, Rosewood leaves to go to the precinct. In the morgue, Rosewood and Via... Via is his unofficial police partner. They go to the dock working on the case in the morgue, and he says that he needs Rosewood's help. Via asks what the cause of death is, and this doc says that he doesn't know. And he's gone over this body now twice. Rosewood tell him that he has a negative autopsy. The doc gets really upset at himself because he's an Emmy, and Emmys should be able to determine cause of death. But Rosewood goes on to say that everyone knows about 10% of deaths have no apparent cause. And I would say this percentage is true. It kind of ranges based on each county, each state, also each country. Everybody has different rates of deaths. But from what I found, the average percentage is anywhere from 5 to 10%. That's so interesting. But also this... (laughs) This made me think of the last episode we did of Rizzoli and Isles, where she's just throwing around medical jargon. Rosewood is just throwing around percentages. Like, everybody knows this random percentage. (laughs) Like, I I guess I don't, Rosewood. Thanks. Yeah, he's throwing like, oh, off the top of my head, I already know this. Well, cool. I'm just an autopsy tech. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) The great debate. (laughs) So this Emmy says that their Jane Doe is unidentifiable because of the maggot situation. Based on the maggot's age, the time of death is between 6 and 10 days ago, and I give this a red flag because if this Jane Doe was really dead 6 to 10 days ago, she would be in or passing Mm -hmm. the bloat stage, everyone's favorite stage. And it's the worst. And that happens around 3 to 5 days after death. And at 8 to 10 days after death, the body turns from this green color to this blackish red color. And in this show, she did not look like how a real dead body at that time would look. She looked relatively fresh. And I was actually thinking while watching this, 
I don't think I've ever seen a crime show that's shown somebody in like a bloat stage. You either see people and they're like, or there was an episode of CSI where someone was basically just liquefied. So they show that because I guess it's just like skeletal at that point or they're mummified or they're like starting to decomp. But I guess I'm wondering, it has to be hard special effects wise to do like a bloat. Yeah, that's true. The props and the makeups department can only do so much for a TV show. It's also not aesthetically pleasing to look at for the viewers. It's not pleasing for me to look at either, but I do it. I love my job. I love my job. I love my job. I really do love my job. Whenever Jess and I have like a really rough day at work, whether it's we're dealing with something gross or something, we look at each other and we just go, I love my job. I love my job. I love my job. <laughs> <laughs> So because flies rapidly discover a body and their development times are predictable under very particular environmental Mm -hmm. conditions, the time of death can be calculated by counting back the days from the state of development of flies living on the corpse. So the larvae, or maggot, is the main feeding stage of the fly. On hatching, first instar larvae are roughly 2 millimeters long, and they grow to about 5 millimeters long before shedding their skin. The second instar larvae grow to be about 10 millimeters before they shed their skins to become the third instar larvae, which that grows between 15 and 20 millimeters before wandering off as prepupae. When the maggots hatch, the first thing they do is kind of burrow under the skin and they leave tiny holes. Mm. Not like massive holes how this body was shown. I've said this before, but I always think of the mummy like the 1990 i think it was 99 oh my god they have those beetles that like crawl under people's skin and it's ooh, it's unsettling and there is thousands of maggots on a given body and that eats away at the entire flesh all within a few hours and this again this jane doe looked relatively fresh minus some eaten parts of her face and also the nose her nose was totally gone which does not happen maggots don't generally Mm -hmm. eat just your nose i noticed that too it was just like her just her nose was gone on her face and i was like i was wondering if they were gonna i was waiting the entire episode for them to explain what happened to her nose i thought like maybe it was like a cause of death or maybe like there was another scavenger and not that like i don't think scavengers would like go for your nose but like yeah dogs and scavengers will kind of eat away at your face They'll, like lick yeah. your face until it's but like it was just her nose it wasn't even like her cheek it was like just the nose they need to hire us as forensic consultant on these shows we can tell them then tell him what color <laughs> the decomp would be. Hire me. I'll tell you everything. But now the police have no ID, no cause of death, and they think the killer has this huge head start. So they think that if they get Jane Doe's ID, that will help them close the gap with the killer. They'll do a facial reconstruction, and Rosewood says he doesn't even need the skull for the reconstruction. He takes a cheek swab for her DNA. Taking a cheek swab is probably the best place to take a DNA sample from. You get the cells from inside your cheek, and those cells contain DNA information in the form of buccal epithelial cells. And I do give this a green flag, because... Doing a facial reconstruction based on DNA is a very up-and-coming way for identification. It's called DNA phenotyping. So there are tissue depth markers all around your face, and you physically apply those if you have the decedent skull. If you don't, you can kind of make a 3D model online, but you apply those depth markers to the decedent skull, and based on DNA-determined ancestry and estimated body weight, 
use all of that to predict a face shape from cranial morphology. A final composite is then produced by digitally blending the two predictions. The doc during the autopsy noted blisters on her back. Rosewood sees extensive heel fissures, which are just cracked heels, and they think maybe she spends a lot of time on her feet. The toxicologist, which is Rosewood's sister Pippi, suggests that maybe Jane Doe could have been an athlete. Maybe she had pressure from bad running shoes. One of the techs then notices varicose veins, which are these twisted and large veins, usually in your legs. And they think that's weird because they're presuming that this girl is 15 years old. But, I mean, you can have poor blood circulation in your legs at any age, but they just think this is weird for this particular case. Yeah, it's true. I wear uh, compression socks at work. I've shown Jess I wear, like, old lady compression socks at work because we're on our feet a lot. And I wear, like, really high compression socks. They're so dorky. But, but like, her hey, gotta get that circulation. Because when I first started working, I would I didn't wear them. And I wasn't used to working a job where I was on my feet that often. I worked in a lab before this, and I just sat at a bench a lot of the day. And, like, so I was on my feet a lot, and I noticed, like, I was getting, like, swollen ankles and stuff. And so I invested in some compression socks. Highly recommend. Oh, yeah. After Alice was wearing them, I was like, oh, maybe I should get them. So I don't always wear, like, my high, knee-high ones. I normally just wear ankle ones. But they make a huge difference. Not old lady ones like me. And there's also bruising on the wrists. The same bruising pattern on the right and the left wrist. Her blood work came back, and she has low serum albumin levels, which is also known as hypoalbuminemia, which happens when your body doesn't produce enough of the albumin protein, so she has a protein deficiency, which in turn means that she was malnourished. Their Jane Doe may have been homeless. Pippi says homeless kids wear whatever size shoe they can get their hands on. Tight shoes equals cracked heels. Varicose veins caused by probably consistently being on the run and malnourished from not eating properly. There's a lot of assumptions, which is something that we try not to do in our morgue. We kind of let the facts speak for themselves and we don't assume anything unless we know from like witnesses and family statements, but we try not to assume anything before they're passing or like we don't try to assume their living conditions or their past in any way we try to focus on what we can see and what we can determine then and there Mm -hmm. if there is information that investigators or police can tell us or the doctor though they will give us that like we'll get like a quick report of a narrative of the scenario that the person was found in but yeah we're not we're not like deducing things and they're like this person must have been doing this i'm like yeah we try to leave that part to the investigators or the police we only care about cause and manner of death right like we we obviously wonder sometimes like be like oh i wonder if this is what caused or like if this person was doing this at this time but yeah it's really up to the investigators we're there to investigate cause and manner there's so many more people involved in an investigation it's not just one person like they always show in the show like rosewood is the one who's doing the investigation he's doing the autopsy he's doing all this in the show no there's so many other people involved it's a team effort these tv shows have to learn how to make these characters stay in their lane rosewood is trying to do the job of like 10 different people at this point let Via, the actual police officer, do her work. Stay in your lane, Rosewood. I actually, I really enjoy watching the show, but it's, I enjoy watching all these shows, but they're just so ridiculous sometimes. That's why I love them. Via found some parents who have lost a daughter, and their daughter matches the Jane Doe's physical characteristics, and they're on their way to the precinct. 
Rosewood tells the techs to biopsy the blisters and to see if there's a high contrast x-ray of the wrists. At the precinct, the parents say that their daughter, Kira, has been missing for six months. The night she left, they thought she went to a dance until they saw that she had emptied out her closet completely. The parents also hired a private investigator who was at the precinct with them, and he says that he traced her to a shelter, but by the time he had gotten there, she was gone. The shelter is at least an hour from where they found their Jane Doe. The facial reconstruction came in, and again, red flag. This does not happen. I think this is all happening, like, within an hour of their time. Again, like, DNA is just so unrealistic. Anything involving DNA is going to take a little bit longer than that. (laughs) Just a little. Traditional, old-school forensic facial reconstructions can sometimes take up to a year, and that's, like, when they're molding the clay onto the actual skull. They're doing a 3D facial reconstruction, and that could take anywhere from, like, 60 hours to be completed. Not one hour of their time. But hey, it's Rosewood. It's Rosewood. They only have 45 minutes of airtime. I just... I love, so I'm assuming I've only watched the two episodes that we've watched for this podcast, but he has like his own private practice is the concept, right? And I feel like they use that in the show to explain a lot of like, oh, he can, he can get facial reconstruction done. It's his practice. He can do whatever. No, it still doesn't work like that. He still has to adhere to policy and procedure. And just like science. It can't happen that quick. He's not God. (laughs) So once you get that final facial reconstruction, the 3D one. You will be shown a computerized ID shot of the victim and then a profile image. The parents say that there is not their daughter. Rosewood may have a theory about one place their Jane Doe may have been before she died. Her blood work came back positive for MRSA, which is a staph infection passed between living in close quarters, so they're going to go investigate that. They go to the jail holding cell. And Rosewood explains that he thinks their Jane Doe had something called handcuff neuropathy. And he says it like a million times in a very funny voice. I did enjoy that. See, I do get a kick out of the show. I do love watching these shows. I just think some of the... He's a little silly goose. He's just a little, he's just a little silly guy. So the damage to the superficial radial nerve on both hands at the same spot likely came from handcuffs that were probably put on too tight. Rosewood is assuming that she was probably arrested. So radial is referring to your radius, which is the bone of your forearm. She was then put in a holding cell where she could have picked up MRSA, which is exactly what Rosewood is going to test for. Rosewood wipes the holding cell bench with what looks like some kind of like napkin thing. And then he puts it on this like handheld device. And the device, the device says that the swab is positive for MRSA. So we're going to give this a red flag just because I've never seen anything like this. And I feel like they should definitely send this to an official lab for testing. Like, maybe this is, like, a quick way to be, like, okay, there's... Remember the phenolphthalein in the wild that I'd never seen before on the episode of CSI? Maybe this is, like, bacterial swab in the wild, and I've just never seen it. If this device really exists, can we get our hands on one? Right? To make some of our testing a lot easier. But, you know, Rosewood has his private practice, so he just has access. He can do whatever he wants. He's, like... The Tony Stark or the Bruce Wayne of this universe. He's just so rich. He has all the toys. He has all the gadgets. And they always do cut shots of him driving this super nice car. Yeah. He just got it all. Can we work for his private practice? He's got everything. I don't think he has any autopsy techs. Yeah. He has a toxicologist and one unnamed scientist. Was she a doctor? She might have been a doctor. There was another character. She seemed fun, but I didn't didn't get a specific 
idea of what her job was from this one episode. I'd probably get more of an idea if I watched more of it, which maybe I will because I did have fun watching this. So Rosewood and his crew go to a spot that a lot of local kids hang out at. They figure out that Jane Doe was arrested there for panhandling with other kids. So how did they figure that out? Did they just show a picture to like the holding cell? And they're like, do you recognize this person? And they were like, yeah, we arrested her for panhandling. But how did that not lead to an ID? It's such a plot hole. Because they were at the jail cell and they're like, they said, they're like, yeah, we found out from the holding cell that she was arrested for panhandling. I'm like, how did you find that out but not have a name? (laughs) Unless she like gave a fake name to the police and they just never figured out who it was. I have never been arrested, so I don't know how the whole thing works. Maybe because she wasn't charged and she's a minor, they don't have anything on file, and they were just holding her to simply hold her. She's a minor. Oh, uh, yeah, maybe she's a minor, or maybe she stuck to her right to remain silent. That's not really explained. She just didn't say anything until maybe she wasn't charged and she was able to be released. I don't know. If anybody else out there knows how this whole process would work, please let me know, because I was really curious how they figured out how she was arrested, but not who she was. I just, and they know her age, and they know so much, but they just don't know who she is. So via asked around this promenade, they kept calling it, if their Jane Doe and the other girl who's missing, Kira, look familiar. And one kid recognizes the girls and says, that's Alice and that's Kira. They're like best friends. Gonna say, do not love that the dead girls had my name. Later on, they're like, yeah, Alice had maggots all over her face. And I'm like, please stop. I hate everything about this. It's like the last one we did where the one girl's name was Jessica and I was cringing the whole time. I was thinking that last week we had someone named Jessica and this week we had Alice. We didn't even do that on purpose. So Oscar says he doesn't know where either girl is now. He thinks Kira took Alice to a clinic because she wasn't feeling too good. But this kid, Oscar doesn't look too good either and rosewood doesn't think that it's MRSA that he has and that it might be something else and then pippi says if this something else is what killed alice they need to get oscar to the hospital quickly at the hospital they find that oscar is MRSA negative but the doctors are running more tests via is worried that kira is out there somewhere either sick like oscar or a murder victim like alice rosewood is going to look at alice's body again to see if there's anything that could help figure out what's wrong with oscar Back at the morgue, they have the body out on the table. Once again, just not in a body bag, just out on a table with a sheet over her. All the testing they did came back with nothing, so they tested the maggots. And this is a green flag, because we have done this for decomp cases before. And there's actually a word for this type of testing, and it's entomotoxicology. The lab will test toxins that were present in the body at the time of death. So we have sent maggots for tox before, although it's not always the best option for a sample because it's so minuscule. Like the sample inside one maggot is probably just like a tiny piece of flesh. And there's no real way to quantify the concentration of drug in tissue using entomological evidence. The maggots from the Jane Doe came back positive for meth. This means that Alice may have been doing meth or may have had been either a user or a dealer. This Alice, your host, is none of those things, everybody. <laughs> Thank you for clarifying. <laughs> I want to throw it out there. <laughs> just felt really weird saying my name in that sentence. The kid Oscar that they were talking to earlier who didn't look that great, the hospital didn't find any meth in his system, even though his symptoms were almost textbook symptoms of meth exposure. So Rosewood now has a drug dealer to find. Even though, Why is he so... He's so involved in this case. He can't help himself. Another subplot of this episode is that Via needs a new partner that's actually a police officer and not Rosewood because he's not a police officer. He's not even their M.E. He's like a private M.E. So I think there was some drama we missed where they got in trouble for working together so often, but he's still there. 
constantly. If he's a private Emmy, why is he the one doing these autopsies? Isn't there a county coroner or Emmy's office taking jurisdiction of these cases? That's the first Emmy we met was the county, I'm assuming, the county Emmy who was freaking out. He's like, I can't find a cause or manner of death and then rosewood had to come in and be like well this is what we call a negative autopsy which like one the other emmy definitely knew what a negative autopsy were they're just trying to make rosewood look like a superhero (laughs) is he coming in as just a second doctor doing a second autopsy he does like all these autopsies are they paying him i have so many questions yeah who's paying him because normally it's families who pay for a private autopsy and maybe in some cases a hospital who's who's paying him to do the second autopsy who's paying for all his gizmos and gadgets that he just pulls out of his pocket and tests swabs of bacteria it's normally the family paying out of pocket for that so who is paying rosewood the only way we can find out is if one of our listeners is a diehard rosewood fan and lets us know or we might have just we just have to watch Rosewood. We have to watch every I, episode. You know, I might. I'll I'll take the bullet on that. I'll watch was Rosewood because I really had a fun time watching this and just laughing. I do enjoy watching the show. It was fun. This is one of the shows I do enjoy watching, and I don't nitpick everything minus for this podcast. Yeah, I know. All the the actors do a great job. It's not the actors' fault. It's just whoever is doing the writing doesn't doesn't know some forensic things and that's fine a lot of these shows don't which is why we have a podcast just hire us (laughs) hire us hollywood please call me call me and jess we'll come we'll help you out we'll play the autopsy text in the background it'll be great anyway rosewood now has a drug dealer to find even though that's not in his job description so via is interviewing a local drug dealer and he says he knows alice and kira he says they have a reputation they were thieves and they stole almost everything they could get their hands on. So the drug dealer thinks that maybe the person who killed Alice was someone that she stole from. Rosewood doesn't buy that the girls are criminals and says if they did steal, it might have been just to survive. But Via thinks he's just getting too emotionally involved. Via and Rosewood go to the hospital again to visit Oscar, and Oscar says that he doesn't know about Kira and Alice stealing anything. But Via isn't buying it. He eventually confesses to Rosewood that Kira and Alice did steal stuff, but only to help out the other kids. They gave most of the stuff that they stole away. He says that they stashed the stuff that they had stolen at an abandoned house on Ocean and Lennox. Rosewood and Via go to the house and notice that it smells weird. Did you think the same thing as me? I thought it was going to be like decomp or something. Yeah, I thought they were going to find something crazy or something rotting upstairs. Yeah, I was on like the edge of my seat ready to call it a red flag because they didn't recognize the weird smell. And I was going to be like, red flag, you know the smell of decomp. You know decomp. If you smelled it once, you know it. It never leaves your memory. It sticks (laughs) with you. Spoiler alert, guys, it wasn't decomp that they're smelling. So they go upstairs and find the girl's stash of things. Rosewood says that one of them should stay there in case Kira comes back. But then they hear someone in the next room. And they find Kira on the floor, bundled up in his sleeping bag and a beanie. And Rosewood says that she's alive, but won't be for long. So they bring Kira to the hospital and the parents to the precinct. Via says that the parents could be responsible for Kira's condition. The house that Kira was found in was used as a meth lab. So that was the weird smell. The texts say the fumes from the meth contaminated Alice and Kira's food and clothes. And that's why Kira and Oscar are sick. Also, Kira's parents own the abandoned house. Kira's father says he doesn't know anything about that. He claims that they bought the house to do renovations and then fell behind on payments and that the bank was going to take the house in the next couple of months. Via isn't buying this, but the parents aren't talking. Later, while at a cardiologist appointment, which is another whole subplot in this show, Rosewood has an epiphany about how Alice died. 
Back in the office, he sees petechiae in the victim's eyes, which are red spots from where capillaries burst. And this could be caused by low voltage electrocution. So this wouldn't leave any other visible marks on the body. And there were electrical wires in the back room of the abandoned house. So it is likely that is where Alice died. So the captain of the precincts brings in a private investigator that the parents, that Kira's parents had hired to find her. And the captain theorizes that the investigator found Kira months ago, but led the parents on a wild goose chase because the money that they were paying him was good. The security cameras at the house got the investigator's car outside the abandoned house. And he also has a MRSA rash on his hand. So bacteria has a, quote, genetic code, they say, which I used to work in an infectious disease lab as a molecular biologist, and I did a lot of, like, DNA PCR testing on bacteria and viruses. So this is true, and I felt it gave me flashbacks to my old job. (laughs) And so they tested Alice's MRSA, and they're going to run it against the MRSA on the private investigator's hand. He uses his fancy gadget again, and it's a match. He got the MRSA from dragging Alice's body out of the house. He confessed and said he found the girls months ago, but still wanted the money, so he didn't say anything. He would go back to the house to check on the girls because he felt bad, and one day when he got there, he didn't see Kira, but he found Alice walking around in a daze, and she fell and tripped and grabbed the electrical wire and died. He didn't kill her, but he did hide her body, and he didn't report Kira and Alice being found, which could have saved Alice's life and Kira from being sick from the meth fumes. So he's going to get charged for at least manslaughter. In this episode, there was a lot going on with the maggots and the facial reconstruction, but something that caught our interest had us wanting to do a deeper dive, and that was the meth exposure sickness that all these kids experienced in the episode. So we found the story of Jamie Alkanani and her family. In 2007, they had bought a home in Salt Lake City, Utah, and a few days after they moved in, a neighbor told them that their house used to be a meth lab. The Alkanani's called their realtor, who told them that the house had been decontaminated and even produced a certificate from the local health department as proof. However, the family all started getting sick. Jamie and her husband developed severe sinus problems that required surgery, and eventually they decided to have their home tested for methamphetamine. The results were shocking, to say the least, showing that the contamination level was 63 times higher than the levels allowed by the Utah State Health Department. That also blows my mind that there are legal levels of methamphetamine allowed to be in your house before it's deemed not livable. Yeah, that number isn't, like, that's ridiculous. So the Alkananis left their home immediately, leaving behind all of their possessions. Houses formerly used as meth labs, known as meth houses, put residents at serious health risk. People have reported experiencing short-term health problems from migraines to skin irritation or burns. There are also long-term effects, as a study from 2009, Toxicology Science, suggests that local exposure can even cause cancer. Highway Patrolman and Narcotics Specialist Sergeant Corey Craig states, When we get into meth labs, we have respirators, Tyvek suits, shoe coverings, gloves, and eye goggles. They wear their PPE. This podcast loves PPE, and these poor people were living in this house not knowing. It's so rough. The chemicals that are used to make methamphetamine include pseudonephrine, the active ingredient in most decongestions, as well as 32 other precursor chemicals that range in toxicity, including acetone, which is an active ingredient in nail polish remover, and phosphine, which is widely used in insecticides. Some states have employed effective regulations, but many have not. 
In Idaho, a former meth lab is deemed clean, air quote, clean, when there is less than one-tenth of a microgram of methamphetamine per square centimeter in the room where the drug was cooked. It's assumed that if meth is detected at such low levels, its dangerous precursor chemicals must also be at low levels too. Most states like Idaho only test for methamphetamine when testing former meth labs for contamination, and they only test the room where the meth was cooked. This methodology doesn't test for harmful chemicals that may be in other parts of the house, like the other precursor chemicals for methamphetamines, and unfortunately, because there was no meth lab disclosure laws in Utah at the time that they bought their house, the Alkanani family has no financial or legal recourse. I will say the articles that I found, or that we found while researching this, were from, I think, like 2009. I was trying to find more recent to see if there's been any, like, legislation or updates on any of this, because this whole story is absolutely insane. So these were, as of 2009... This is what they were doing. Yeah, this article is 13 years old now. But I feel like in 13 years, there has to be some new state law or legislator that they came up with. And you can't, they can't sell the house. Like, no one's gonna, they can't sell the house. And that's not their fault. Yeah, because nothing was disclosed to them. I couldn't find more recent updates on their story. So I think this was just what we had. And it's heartbreaking. They had some serious medical things happen to them. I'm definitely going to do more reading on if there's been any update in legislation since this. So to end this episode, we tallied a total of two green flags and four red flags. So in our opinion, this episode of Rosewood does not pass in terms of forensic accuracy, but it was still pretty entertaining. I had a fun time watching it. Overall, this was a good episode. It's just fun and goofy. He's just a silly little guy. <laughs> he was just a silly <laughs> his, little guy. With his gadgets like Tony Stark, just pulling things out of his pocket. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Morgue. If you enjoy our podcast and want to learn more about forensics, keep on listening. You can find us on Instagram at Inside the Morgue Pod and DM us with anything you want to talk about. We'll be back next week for a brand new dissection. Bye. Bye.